1: Hi, I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Erin Street, and this is episode 282 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're bringing back Jason Freed to talk about going and staying remote.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Smith.ai, Back Office Bettys, Law Pay, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. Well, Erin, I want to talk to you a little bit about why Lawyerist is remote because I feel like you all have made that decision as a company long before it was necessary to do it or even popular enough across different companies to be intentional about setting up a remote team. So can you tell me a little bit about what went into that decision?
1: Yeah, I can't say it was actually quite as strategic and full of foresight as it might now appear um, (laughs) in the fall of 2017 we were in the process of hiring a part-time operations coordinator and decided at that point that we wanted a contractor instead of an employee and so we searched using Upwork to try and find someone who happened to be in a different state than lawyerist was but because they were going to be a part-time contractor it seemed like no big deal and then as soon as we got to know her it was within days of her having that contract that we realized that we had totally misthought that role and that she definitely needed to be an employee of the company. And so we had to do all sorts of weird negotiating with Upwork to buy out her rights as a contractor in order to make her an employee. It was a whole big ordeal. But from that moment, we had a remote employee who wasn't based in Minnesota where the company was. And then in the recruiting we did in the subsequent two years or so, kind of kept repeating that strategy a little bit of trying to find the best person in the country for the roles we were hiring for. And weirdly, it turned out that about half of them did come from Minnesota. So we kept having this quasi- local remote framework on our team you happened to be in minnesota but we had never said the word minnesota in the posting (laughs) when we hired you but you also never worked in our office so it's interesting stuff like that that has played out so last fall in october or november of 2019 We had had some struggles with employees who felt kind of mixed messages about how some of our team could be remote, but some of the local people couldn't. And there were some frustrations and we decided we really needed to step back and rethink our feelings and policies around remote employees and the company's stance on remote work. And in that reflection, realized that us clinging to the idea that people who were local should work in an office with us, even though other people didn't was just this weird problematic fallacy. And so we kind of scrapped the whole thing and went fully remote back in October, November last year. Um, As people have heard on the podcast before, we started working with Mary Ellen Stockton to help us think through remote work strategies and policies and tools and procedures. And so we, Pulled the trigger on being fully remote a full six months before the rest of the world had to do it. And we've kind of been advocating for other people to think through it that way, um, even separate from this whole COVID crisis. And so the big thing that drives our interest in remote work is our ability to recruit the absolute best people we can find regardless of geography or local job markets or local job postings. And that allows us to recruit from within the lawyerist community to seek our network all across the country and around the world to find the best people we can for the team. And that has allowed us to do really high-quality work essentially lower cost because we also aren't tied to a particular labor market or to paying rent or things like that. So it's been a win-win-win across the board. It hasn't come without some challenges in thinking about procedures and tools and communication and stuff, but we don't regret it for a moment and definitely are not looking back at all.
0: That's really interesting because what I take away from that is that you shouldn't try to hold yourself of this standard of perfection the first time around, because it's definitely something where you have to ease into what remote work looks like for you. Is that going to be with a team of contractors and then also employees, or is it just going to be one or the other? You know, how are you going to set that up from the beginning to be successful for the people that you're recruiting? Has it changed the interview process at all to not have someone that you're meeting face to face until potentially after you've hired them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's changed it a lot at least subtly in a number of ways. So one is we do a multi-stage interviewing process where to go from applicant to being on our team, you're going through four or five different steps in the process, each of which has its own purpose. So it's not that you have five generic interviews with people asking whatever stuff they're curious about. It's that we have one interview based on culture and one interview based on competency and one interview based on experience, etc. And we now include one short interview as part of the process in vetting people's ability to work remotely, and that includes a little bit of a tech tools audit of where will your office space be, what kinds of tools are you using, are you competent at having quality video meetings do you have experience doing remote work because these days now everyone has at least a couple of months of experience but months ago there were people who had done it and people who hadn't and most of the people who hadn't hadn't yet learned some of the good practices and hygiene of how to do remote work communication and how to be good on video and those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely become more popular now where some of those kinks have been worked out by people who are newer to the remote working world. As the leader, do you find that it's important to have some type of mentality or processes around what remote work looks like for your company? Because for some people, it can be perhaps a lot more um, flexible than they're expecting, or maybe not flexible enough, depending on what their perception of being able to work from home was.
1: Yeah. So some of the kind of culture and values fit questions we do in our interview process include kind of trying to test some behaviors and experiences around accountability and trust and ability to work on your own, but also ability to not isolate yourself. Being successful at remote work as a worker and as a whole team requires some kind of delicate balancing between making sure you're providing the right amount of over-communication and over-coordination and casual team culture building that you would get in an office without having people spending all day, every day, just on video or meeting or chatting. So they aren't getting work done. And it's, it's a balance, but it's one that we've found our interviewing seems to do a pretty good job of sussing out who's got that right mindset and tool set, and who is probably going to be harder to feel like a right fit in that environment. And of course, as I said, like everyone's doing it now. So the equation has changed a little bit. At the same time, I think so many law firms or companies that are kind of in the suddenly remote space at this point still have the opportunity to step back and think about what does a remote work culture look like as opposed to a crisis and what does it look like to nurture our employees right now in a time where they're scared and overwhelmed and probably still have kids at home all day every day while they're trying to work and those kinds of things. And I think we're now realizing that Some of the economic stuff is in for the long haul now, and that we're in marathon mode, not crisis sprint mode. And I think it's a great opportunity for people, especially with this conversation with Jason coming up, to step back and think through. Can we do some reset now and learn from the past three months to start doing it even better and doing it right?
0: Yeah, and there's some great tips from Jason in this episode about how you try to strike that balance between making sure that everyone has the tools and training and the support that they need to do their job on their own, but also to collaborate and to allow for that space to build the team culture. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Maddie Martin from smith.ai, and then my conversation with Jason.
2: Hi, I'm Maddie Martin, the Head of Growth and Education for Smith AI Virtual Receptionists. Hey, welcome. And I'm excited to
0: chat with you a little bit. One of the things I think that's become a challenge for people, especially working from home, is you've still got to stay responsive, but that also needs to not be overwhelming for you as a business owner or an attorney. Can you speak a little bit about that?
2: Oh, absolutely. One of the hardest things around this whole coronavirus crisis uh, with COVID is that, okay, now we figured out how to handle our internet and phone and communications from home, but isn't that such an inundation, a flood of all the uh, calls that come through that are now just forwarded to your cell phone? The problem is twofold one, there are new leads who are calling who absolutely deserve a fast response. And we know that's the single biggest indicator to whether or not they'll hire your firm. But we also know that an unknown number could be spam, or it could be the best new client, or it could be a referral partner or someone in the community who wants to highlight your work or partner with you. So it's really hard to know whether or not to accept the interruption, even though some of the time the interruption is a thing that brings you and sustains your business. And part of this is that
0: we have to meet the potential client where they're at, so they might not necessarily want to do a phone call, but then you've got this challenge of, okay, how do I also stay responsive and keep it managed through text, through Facebook, through website chat? Do you have any tips on
2: that? Yeah, I do. And I think like one of the biggest challenges right now is that new potential clients are looking for new discrete ways to communicate with attorneys because they're in close quarters, they're at home maybe with elderly parents who they need to talk to a lawyer about, or there are matters that are sensitive or too adult for children to overhear. And even when we go back to the workplace, we know that you don't want your coworkers overhearing you talking to an attorney for a number of different reasons. So this is not something that's going away. But right now, discretion is really important. People are texting, they're sending messages on Facebook where they're asking for and receiving recommendations for law firms. And they're also visiting a website first. It's really discreet and easy to sort of type out a message rather than have a phone call that can be overheard. The problem is now, this means, okay, I have to be super responsive on all of these different channels because I know new leads can come in from any of them. Maybe you're even running campaigns, so that is directly a cost to you. And through these discovery channels, there's a lot of noise. So what's essential is that you have really good sort of capture points set up that are immediate but aren't necessarily you who can also screen and schedule and book these clients for a consult without your direct involvement. So all you have to do as the firm owner is look at your schedule or accept a direct transfer from your receptionist service and say, okay, I know this is already a qualified or screened lead. I wouldn't be getting a call to my business number unless it's already passed through my gatekeeper, so to speak. So that to me is a real hack here. To say, how can I be both responsive, get work done, give my clients the discretion that they need, and a really quick response? Really, the only way to do so is to outsource it and automate it. And that's what we're delivering.
0: And where do you recommend that somebody start if they currently have none of those plans in place and need assistance figuring out, okay, how do I build that system or decide which of these things needs to be outsourced first? Is that kind of based on wherever they're getting the most information? you know coming to them and kind of bombarding them
2: well absolutely wherever you're seeing the most leads come through that is the number one place to address your time and attention but i will emphasize and i think baked into your question is sort of this misunderstanding from a lot of attorneys who say i need to come prepared to a receptionist service with all my answers and i just want to put at ease those concerns that you have to have your whole intake playbook really dialed in and mapped out. You know exactly how every conversation is going to go and you have a script. That is almost never the case with any client who we work with. And we as the experts can guide you into the right way to set up these conversations, the right questions to ask, what's important at the outset. And even in the onboarding form, we, we steer and we guide so that you just answer the questions that allow us to do a great job on the phone. And we'll ask you for you know, your calendar link for consultations or do you prefer that we schedule with one attorney or another if you have a partner, or can we warm transfer to you if someone is on the line who's a qualified lead. Now, all of those questions are pretty easy to get through. And in a day or two, you get the free trial. And that's my recommendation is to say, go with a service that offers a sort of free experience that gives you the full, not the light version, so to speak. And you can understand during those 20 calls, how to refine the process, what it really is, looks like how the experience is for you and tweaks so that by the time you come to the discussion around, well, what is this going to look like for me on a month to month basis? You're very clear on the return on that very small investment. And that's really where I would focus your budget and your attention, is not in coming prepared for the script, but looking at where you, as you mentioned, Laura, where you're spending the most time and money, where the leads are coming through, make sure that you're super responsive. And if you are spending any money on a marketing campaign, Be very thoughtful around how quickly you are responding to those leads. Know your time to respond and the conversion from those campaigns so that you can say, you know, I, with just, you know, a hundred or a couple hundred bucks a month, depending on your call volume, could get how many new consultations that you know are going to convert over 50% rate. Into new clients, well, that's a total no brainer. I mean, we know that a new client is worth, you know, what, two, three, five thousand dollars. So that's really the math that I think people should be doing in the energy and investment rather than trying to figure out your process, which is really where we can come in and say, we've got you.
0: Great. This is an excellent opportunity to streamline your process and have someone else help you set it up from the beginning the right way. Smith.ai is offering a free 20 call or chat trial for the live service. You can get a sense of how it works. You can also use their free white glove setup for the chat chatbot, which runs 24-7, smith.ai AI is a Lawyerist Affinity Partner, and you can use the code LAWYERIST100 for $100 off your first month at smith.ai.
2: Thanks, Maddie. Thanks, Laura.
3: Hey, my name is Jason Freed, and I'm the CEO of Basecamp.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming back on our show. You've been a guest before, and it's been a very popular episode. So we wanted to chat with you again in light of the fact that you've been talking about remote work for a long time, and now there's a lot of people who have, you know, kind of by necessity had to transition to remote work. What have been some of the challenges that you think people might have experienced in trying to move to remote and virtual teams when it wasn't really something they'd considered before?
3: Yeah, uh, it's it's not so much of a transition as it is a scramble for a lot of companies. Um, I think the hardest thing is, and I think people are making some mistakes here, but I understand why because everyone's scrambling, but trying to simulate the office in a remote environment is the wrong approach, but it's the approach a lot of people take because that's kind of all they know. They sort of port over what they were doing when everyone was together online, meaning they have the same number of meetings. They just now had them over Zoom or Skype or something else. They still try to communicate in real time all the time by either you know instant messaging each other or jumping on more calls or jumping on more video chats. And that's not really the right way to remote work. Remote working is really more about asynchronous communication, writing things up, sharing them with other people, letting other people get back to you when they have time, not making everything about real time. Real time is easier to do in the office, but it's way worse to do remotely because there is a real mental fatigue that comes with sitting in front of a camera all the time, all day long. It's really a very different thing. First of all, I'm pretty much anti-meeting to begin with, but if you're going to have them in person ones are much better than remote ones, especially if you have remote ones over and over and over and over. So people are getting fatigued. They're tired. They're exhausted. its It's just not a pleasant thing to do to sit in front of a camera and stare straight ahead. So I would encourage people not to do that, but I know that's a heavy lift to begin with
0: right and you've talked quite a bit about how things like these daily meetings and stand-ups are a total waste of time but it feels like a lot of people that are leading companies that have had to go suddenly remote and were averse to it before that might be their default that they go to because there's that need of like well i need to check in and make sure that people are actually working and are doing what i think they're supposed to be doing but that can actually be really disruptive to the employees getting things done
3: not only is it disruptive it basically takes an hour away from everybody's day yeah so you expect people to let's say put in eight hours a day now they have seven and why do they have seven because they had to sit around and listen to something that could have been written up and disseminated in read in five minutes versus sitting around for an hour and listening to everyone go in a circle essentially about what's going on and what's happening and daily stand-ups and all it's like it's so costly to do that and it's so unnecessary but yes yeah, it is people's first instinct because that's what happens in any situation where there's a, basically a flat-out platform change and remote working is a platform change compared to local working, just as switching from the Mac to Windows or Windows to the Mac is a platform change, just as when the internet first happened, switching from basically no internet to the internet is a platform change. And these, whenever platform changes occur, people try to port over prior behavior. Same thing probably happened with radio and TV. Like... Early TV shows were like radio shows, basically, in a sense. And so that's what you do because that's what you know. And it takes a while for people to understand the advantages of specific situations and mediums. And remote work is an advantaged situation in a lot of different ways. But you have to understand and be open to the advantages. You cannot just think it's local working without being able to see other people. That's not what it is. Just like the Mac is not... Windows. They're different platforms with different ideas and different points of view. And to get good at either, you have to take advantage of either. They're not equal. and They're they're equal in their own way. They're both operating systems, right? But they have a different point of view about what's important, how things work. And the same thing is true for at office and also at homework.
0: And I think a lot of the way that people are approaching just doing business in general is likely to change after this pandemic is over. Uh, What are your thoughts on what might stay the same? Do you expect that a lot of companies are going to stay remote or kind of look for the opportunity to move back to the office? I'm sure there's lots of factors that go into that decision, but I think we're all kind of curious what is going to be the shakeup when kind of life returns to whatever the new normal looks like.
3: Yeah, I think we're going to see a whole bunch of things, but hopefully what we see is some optionality, Uh, meaning like maybe people can work at home two or three days a week. Mm -hmm. You know, companies have offices and they pay rent and they may have long-term leases. And I'm pretty sure that that plays a part in where the company wants people to be. Like if we're paying for an office, we want people at the office, regardless of whether or not that's a good idea. That's just going to happen. But hopefully now people have the option to work at home some more. When perhaps before, let's call it six months ago, That was just simply not an option at all. So I think that is a huge win. The other thing I think that is a win is that a myth has been busted. And anytime a myth is busted in my book, that's a good day. So the myth being that the office is special, that work can only happen in office, that collaboration can only happen in an office, that there's some special thing that happens there. It's not special. It's a space. It's a space and there's other kinds of spaces. There are virtual spaces. There are personal spaces. It's just a space. It's not magic. It's not special. There are some advantages, clearly, but there's lots of disadvantages, too. And I think that once people began to adjust, and not everybody, but many, many people begin to adjust to working from home, they find themselves getting more things done, having a little bit more time to themselves, being able to manage their day and their time a little bit better. And people are going to appreciate that. So I think people are going to demand and expect to have some of that during the week, versus just everyone back to the office, back to business as usual.
0: Do you have any recommendations for the company that's in that position and is thinking about what does this look like for us when it's no longer a necessity? What kind of factors do you need to take into account to deciding what type of remote work plan is most appropriate?
3: Probably depends a bit on the business and a, a bit on one of the tricky things I think is if you're a client facing business and your client perhaps expects you to once things are back to whatever normal we have, um, expects you to meet in person again. You have different pressures on you than if you are a company like ours at Basecamp, we don't meet with customers or clients. That's just not how we work. So we can afford, in a sense, to do what we want to do. We don't have the pressures of someone else You know, who pays us, let's say, I mean, if you're a lawyer, you might get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by certain companies and they expect you to be in their office for this meeting or that meeting, or they come to yours. Like it's a little bit harder to say no to those situations, but hopefully when it comes to employees and what you're in complete control over at your business, you give people some optionality and this can extend in a few different directions. So one is just working at home in the same city. Another is let people move around and be wherever they want to be and not have to lose their job because they want a change of scenery or their partner has to move somewhere else because their job requires a move and maybe yours doesn't you know can you be flexible so there's a lot of options here i think just again optionality is something that's new now and you can't use the excuse that like we just can't do it like that excuse has been blown out of the water it's over so now like that's good because now we go now we can do it and now we're a more resilient company because We realized that before we thought we couldn't do something, now we can, and we can do things in multiple places. That's got to make people feel better about things. Because look, if you have an office, there could be a fire in the office. There could be a flood in the office. There could be all sorts of things that happen in office. And now, before it'd be like, oh my God, what do we do? Now it's like, oh, we can handle this. We got this. And I think that the feeling of we got this, if things change on us and current conditions change, is a really confidence-inspiring set of conditions that I think is gonna benefit a lot of companies and a lot of employees. I mean, I'm mostly happy for employees in this case because finally they get a chance to have a little more flexibility in their work day and a little bit more control over their time. And I think that that's just a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful advancement in the history of, of sort of employee power.
0: Yeah, and that kind of brings up this idea of the fact that employees now have the option too in deciding assuming their employer presents them with some different choices about what this could potentially look like to figure out what's really going to work the best for them as they decide, you know, is this going to be something where I go into the office a couple of days a week? Am I permanently remote if that's an option with my particular career? I think one challenge that a lot of people have experienced in becoming suddenly remote is guarding against overwork or kind of this idea that because you can work from your home and anywhere in your home, it becomes an ongoing process where you're not really cutting off that line between work and personal. Do you have any recommendations for employees who are trying to strike that balance?
3: Yes, that is hard. And it's probably the hardest thing. And it's funny because it's not what people mostly think. So a lot of people would think that working at home means people are going to take it easy you know, and slack off and not do their work or whatever. It's really not the case most of the time, especially with professional people who have, you know, a lot of work on their plate to get done. Like they have to get it done. They end up working longer. And part of the reason for that is because the spaces that we end up working in a home are multi-use spaces for many people, not everybody. Some people are fortunate and they have a home office or they have an extra bedroom and fine. But a lot of people don't, especially in crowded cities. Like if you live in New York and you live in an apartment, like you may have, it might be a studio, it might be maybe a two bedroom if you're lucky. And that other bedroom might've been used for like, who knows what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is if you can, you want to carve out some dedicated space that you can enter and leave. And it might even be a walk-in closet. Something that's like, this is the office. When I'm not here, I'm not working. When I'm in here, I am working. Because if you just open your laptop on the kitchen table and that's where you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner and hang out, whatever, and that's also where you work, it just becomes really easy to pop that laptop open or keep it open during dinner or whatever and put in more work than you need to. So if you can, carve out some space, as small as it is. If you can't, You can sort of simulate that by like wearing headphones or some other thing. that's like, when I have these on, I'm in work mode. When I don't have these on. I'm not checking work and it's going to take some self-discipline and it feels a little silly in some ways, but like, ultimately you've got to make it almost feel like, let me step back for a second. This is sort of, even though I, I, again, I don't like commutes and I think they're a waste of time. There's a benefit to the commute and that like, it separates work and life in a sense. You get in your car, you get in the train or the bus and you go, And then you do the same thing on the way home and it's kind of over. A lot of people still work at home because they have computers and phones and the whole thing. But so I think you want to try to, as best you can, simulate this this feeling of coming and going, entering and leaving, and just kind of set up those kind of boundaries however you can. If it's space, if it's headphones, if it's some other technique that you have, one might be don't use your laptop for like browsing the web, use your phone. And if you're on your phone, it's for personal stuff. Like just don't like open your laptop and start doing personal stuff. Cause then you're maybe easy to just see your work email and jump back into it. So you gotta do what you can with what you have, but those are some of the suggestions I would encourage people to, to take up.
0: Those are excellent tips. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Part of building a successful practice
4: is finding the right payment partner. It's important to work with a processor that understands the complex rules for legal payments. LawPay is the only payment solution that ensures trust account compliance for both credit card and e-check transactions. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage Program and all 50 state bars, LawPay. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. Support for today's episode comes from BackOffice Bettys, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit wwwbackofficebettiescom lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month. Typing the same thing like your email address or phone number over and over is a productivity killer. Turn everything you need to type more than once into a snippet with TextExpander. Type an abbreviation you make, and your snippet automatically expands. Text Expander works everywhere you type and helps you reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander is also available for companies, so you can share snippets with everyone on your team. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit Textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander.
0: So I love all of those tips because they're very actionable and can help people create a firmer line between their personal life and their work life. One thing that I really want to talk about is, does that change your hiring process? Because now companies that previously hired mostly in person and mostly looked for local talent, if they're making that decision to stay fully remote, does that alter the hiring process at all? Or is it still just about trying to find the best person for the job?
3: From our point of view, it's trying to find the best person for the job. You have to consider your context, though. So if you are, let's say there's a vaccine in a year or whatever, and everyone's vaccinated from COVID and everyone can go back to the office and like work within three inches of each other, like it's all back to normal, right? And if most people decide to go back to the office or if the company requires most people to go back to the office and only has three or four or 5% remote, it's really hard to be a new employee in that situation and be a remote employee. So if 95% of the company is, is local and you're one of the remote employees who was just hired and only 5% is remote, like you're going to be at a massive disadvantage because the culture is going to be local. That's a real trick here. And it's going to be difficult, I think, for companies to navigate the hiring process when there's a hybrid sort of situation. So at Basecamp, we have an office in Chicago. We have 56 people in our company, but only about a dozen work in Chicago. And we do have an office, but... Since the 12 people is a minority out of 56, our culture is remote first. And those who are local occasionally, and it's only like a couple days a week, people come in anyway, there's a little bit of a bonus there and a little bit of a different culture, but primarily the culture is remote. So I think if you're going to have remote employees and you're going to hire remotely, the majority of the company needs to be remote because then the workflows, the practices, the tooling, the way everyone collaborates will be optimized for remote people. And that'll give new remote employees equal standing versus like being one of the few remote people when everyone else is local. I hate the answering with "depends" because it's no fun, but it is just kind of, <laughs> it is about context here. Right. I do think what's exciting about it from an employer's point of view is that every company says that they want to hire the best people they can. Like that's what everyone says. And I believe that every company does want that, but that's in conflict with reality, which is that the best people in the world are not within 20 miles of your corporate headquarters. Like there's just no chance that that's the case, unless you're talking extremely specific skills where there just happens to be one town where the whole world's knowledge lives in that one town. Like in most cases, they're incredibly talented, smart, wonderful people all over the place, no matter where your headquarters is. So it gives employers an opportunity to hire, to look around somewhere and hire the best people they can. And so I think that's wonderful. And also for employees, it's wonderful because people get to work For great companies that they normally couldn't because those great companies weren't in their own city or town or state or country or whatever. There are some clearly some complicated situations around taxes and accounting and nexus and all that stuff, which I'm sure many of your listeners know way more than I do, but that can be complicated. Our life is very complicated at Basecamp because we have people working in, I don't know, a dozen different states and we have to pay taxes in a bunch of different places and it's definitely a hassle. There's no question about it's a hassle, but it's worth it still for all the other benefits we get. Everything's a trade-off and you can't just go, that's a hassle. It's not worth it. Well, it's maybe not worth it independently, but when you look at all the other great things you get when people get to work remotely, it's it's absolutely worth it, but it is definitely additional work.
0: That makes a lot of sense. My background before coming to Lawyerist was working as a freelancer, and I found increasingly, you know, when I started freelancing eight years ago, a lot of people were resistant to this idea that that could be a real career, that you'd be able to find clients that were global and never met you in person or things like that. And my experience was that clients were looking for the best person For that skill set that they needed. And it didn't really matter if that person was five time zones away or right down the street. And I think that now employers have the opportunity to think about that with their employees as well, and not just how they outsource to digital contractors or things like that. But it falls to the leader to really build a good culture. And one of the things I think the entire country is struggling with right now is there was pressure due to the pandemic, and now there's kind of widespread civil unrest. How, as a leader, do you make sure that employees feel heard and have an open floor to share whatever concerns or how these kinds of events are affecting them when you're not in the physical office?
3: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, There's a few different facets to that one. So at Basecamp, we use Basecamp, the product, to do all of our internal communication and collaboration. What ends up happening is when you have a centralized tool like this, where we post messages and can chat and have comments and all the stuff and to-dos and schedules, that inevitably the world is on people's minds and the world leaks into work in that way. And some people love discussing the pandemic and civil unrest and all sorts of things that are going on today with their coworkers. But other people, it brings on significant anxiety and they don't want to talk about it at work and they're not comfortable talking about it at work. And so what we did is we set up separate projects inside Basecamp for people to discuss those things, and these are opt-in places. So the rule basically is no discussion of highly anxiety-producing topics in general work areas online using Basecamp. We set up a project called Pandemics, which is like a place to go and talk about all the pandemics in the world. Obviously, COVID's the number one right now, but if you really want to talk about the latest science, the latest findings, every news article, like you go there, but you opt in this way. Nobody is scaring you by just looking at your day-to-day work. Same thing is true for the police brutality situation that's going on now and racism, and there's a place for that. We actually just call that one, I think it's called civility, or all civility is, I believe, what that project's called. And so people can go in there and talk about those things. And there's a lot of things like books being shared and online talks being shared and articles being shared. and people are asking questions like, I had to admit, I was totally ignorant about this. How do I get up to speed? And people are willing to help. But this stuff is staying out of the day-to-day work because It causes all sorts of emotions for people. And it's hard when you can't step away from that, if it really triggers you for whatever reason. So it is important for us to create these spaces because these conversations are going to be had and should be had, but it's also important for us to shield the work itself. So people don't feel like they can't participate in their job because they're filled with grief or filled with anxiety or whatever, because this, what's going on now, I mean, the past six months have been pretty heavy and it could get heavier. Who knows where things are going. So that's, what we needed to do and that's how we do it virtually. And I think in person, actually it's harder. I think this is actually an advantage to remote work because in person, if you're sitting in the lunchroom or lunch table or wherever you eat lunch at work, perhaps in the kitchen or the cafeteria or whatever, there's a good chance you're gonna overhear conversations you may not wanna overhear, may not wanna be part of, and you kinda can't get away from those. Online you can just not go there. You can just not go into that room if the rest of the places in, in Basecamp are not having those conversations. So that's kind of our approach and I think it's a, a pretty it's been very successful.
0: That makes a lot of sense to kind of create those areas where people can go and share resources and communicate with one another, but it's an optional thing. And so you've still allowed there to be a platform where they can go and have those discussions and hear those kinds of subjects, but they're positively opting in to say, okay, I'm going to step into this space where we're discussing some difficult issues and I can't really account for what has already been said in here and what might be said as well. And so I think that's kind of One of the most important things about remote work is figuring out how you delineate these different types of messages and manage the massive flow of information that can sometimes be coming at you. That can certainly happen in an office, but it usually tends to be more uh, physical disruptions being pulled into meetings, that coworker walking over to your desk and saying, hey, can we chat about that thing? Do you have any recommendations for managing sort of all of the different information touch points that you have as a remote team to where it's effective communication, but it's not overload.
3: Yeah, that's a really great point. I have a few suggestions. One is you want to standardize on, I believe, a tool. What happens is, is that when you have three or four or five different tools and you can have a chat over here and you can write up stuff over here and you can email over here and it just becomes impossible for any central management of like where information lives how it's being sent out, how notifications are set up. And that's why you get this flow. It's like, oh my God, messages are coming in here and in here and in here, I thought I turned them off over here. Well, I did, but this other thing is still sending me stuff. And how do I do that? There are different programs. And in our opinion, this is a really strong opinion, you want to have one tool where all the communication happens, where you can kind of know what's happening and you know where to go and you can tune that thing out if you want and you know you won't hear from anything else. Versus having to manage like this suite of three or four or five other things that are sending you notifications left and right. Now, for us, of course, that's Basecamp. I'm biased, but I also believe (laughs) it's the best tool for the job. But everyone's got to choose what they want. The point is, is that try to get down to one thing that's sending information back and forth. Because then you have a little bit more control over the spigot. I think that's number one. Um, Number two, I think it's important... This is a leadership thing, too, to remind people that they don't need to follow and know everything that's happening across the company all the time. At any given time, there's dozens and dozens of different projects happening at Basecamp, all sorts of things. And if I felt like as an employee, I had to follow all of those things, I would find myself just overwhelmed. And it's on me as the owner and team leads here at Basecamp to remind their team that the only thing you're responsible for... Knowing everything about are the projects that you're actually on, which is usually one or two things. And then if you're curious about what's happening in the company, we have this thing we do, we have this project in Basecamp called What Works. And in this project, Basecamp has a feature called Automatic Check-ins. Automatic check-ins send people reminders at given times during the day or the week. You can set the schedule for them. It prompts them to write like a journal entry, basically. So... Every day at the end of every day, people are prompted by Basecamp automatically to say, what'd you work on today? And people just simply write up what they worked on today. Some people write a few bullet points, some people write a few paragraphs and it's all published back to Basecamp in this one project. So if you really wanna know what's happening across the whole company, you can check that yourself once a day or once every few days and just kind of read through the journal versus feeling like you have to follow the 14 other things that are happening where this information was originally coming from all day long. That's really impossible. That's like the fire hose. It's just impossible to to handle that. So some of this is structural and how you work and being very deliberate about the way you work. And I think telling teams, they only need to focus on the work that they need to do. And if they're curious about what's happening across the company, check this one place out every few days, spend 15 minutes reading it, and you'll be totally up to speed on all the stuff that's happening that doesn't involve you, but that you're curious about. And then it becomes a very manageable situation. It's not complicated. It's not hard. And there's no like river flow. There's just like trickles whenever you want to go check it out. So that's kind of how we do it. It's very different from how most companies do it. But I have to tell you, it frees people up in big, huge ways. It reduces anxiety. It reduces the fear of missing out. It reduces the feeling of feeling like you need to know everything because there's going to be a pop quiz somehow like at work about what's happening. It's like there's no reason to need to follow every single thing that's happening. Work should not feel like 24-hour breaking news, you know? Mm -hmm. It should be like the newspaper. Check it in the morning, maybe, and you have a good sense of what happened yesterday. That's what the newspaper is great at, and that's kind of what this section in Basecamp is great at.
0: And compartmentalizing those messages and trying to get down to one tool makes a lot of sense to you and to me. What would you say to the people who go, but what about email? I, I still got to have my email inbox, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, we don't use email internally. We use email for external communications. So for example, in your world, clients can email you, they're going to email you. I mean, like Basecamp has a feature called the client feature, which lets people email into Basecamp. So you're organized, but at the same time, like not everyone's going to do that, right? They're going to just keep using whatever address they have for you. And that's whole thing. So that's fine. Like, it is what it is. Like, you can't change the reality. You can encourage people to do this thing or that thing. Like, for example, I won't name our accounting firm, but we use an accounting firm, and they prefer us to communicate with them in this secure portal, Mm -hmm. right, which is probably familiar to a lot of attorneys. They probably have something similar. And I gotta be honest with you, it's terrible. Like it's just, I, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> it's like impossible right. to get into. It's totally cryptic. It's old. It just looks like it was hasn't been considered for many years. And I'm just gonna email my accountant because it's too hard to do it the other way. And so the point is, is that even though I work in this world and this technical, like people are still gonna email you, and that's fine. Okay, but email is for external communications with external parties. Internal communication should be in a centralized system that is not inbox based it's not about who has what in their inbox it needs to be shared projects shared spaces where everyone can see the same thing you know anyone who's invited to the place to the project so if there's six people working on a case or something those six people can see it internally and that's it but they can see everything otherwise you have different versions of the truth someone has 18 emails in their inbox someone else has 24. why is there six different emails because like someone forgot to cc someone else and now there's different sets of truth and now no one knows who the latest is and what's going on. Like that's just a recipe for chaos. You want to make sure that that doesn't happen as often as you can. And the best way to do that is to have a centralized set of communication tools like Basecamp where everyone can see the same thing who's involved with something. There are no different versions of things, but externally, yes, email is going to be the thing people are going to use. And I think it's totally fine. Um, But it's, uh, it's, you know, you got to understand the limits of, of the inbox.
0: Yeah. And I know you've been working on something that's relatively new with regard to email and helping people kind of shift their perspective about it.
3: Yes. So we're um, building a new product. It's called Hey, H E Y. That's at hey.com. And you know, what's interesting about email is that the last time people really got excited about email was 16 years ago. That's when <laughs> Gmail was launched. Okay, 16 years. It's a long time. I remember when Gmail launched and it was a pretty big deal. It was totally different. Before that, like everyone was using Yahoo mail and it felt really old and there's no competition. Gmail comes out of nowhere and it's significantly better, has a whole bunch of new ideas in it. And that was 16 years ago. And it hasn't changed that much since. It's gotten more complicated. Email has gotten worse in general because more people are emailing you automated transactional emails. And it's just like, it feels like a overflow again, like a big flood. And so we're kind of going back to square one with email. And we have figured out, I should say, now that the product's about to launch in a couple weeks here, how to give people control their email again. And it starts with consent. So 50 years ago, when email was invented, it was invented in the seventies, 50 years ago, it made sense for anyone to be able to email you. And probably even 20 years ago, because email was like kind of the only way to get in touch and you gave out your email address and people could get a hold of you. And it was amazing. Today, your email address has been bought and sold and traded and it's everywhere. And it's no longer yours in a sense in that anyone can email you. And this is what's wrong with email. It's square one. If anyone can email you, then you're overloaded. You're overrun. People can sign you up for things you don't want to be part of. You donate to one cause. All of a sudden, you get emails from seven more because they sold your email address. And so with Hey, you get to decide who you get emails from. The first time somebody ever emails you. They don't land in your inbox they land in this other place called the screener just like you'd screen your calls you can now screen your emails and it says this person's emailing you for the first time do you ever want to hear from them and there's a yes or no button if you hit yes <laughs> they're in you want to hear from them if you hit no, you'll never hear from them again essentially they're blocked forever you can always change your mind but they're blocked so that salesperson who sends you eight drip emails over three weeks like They'll send you one and then you'll never get those other seven because you said no. It's basically unsubscribing from people before they can even email you. (laughs) And it's a wonderful change. And that's just the beginning of the change. But that in itself basically shrinks the flow significantly. So now you're not being overwhelmed anymore. You're just hearing from people you want to hear from. And then we give you a whole bunch of other tools that change the way you manage email and where email goes and what you see when and how people can email you that you've said yes to. And it's just a wonderful change. And it's totally changed my email life. And it's really radically different. And we are excited to finally bring some energy back to email after 16 years of it kind of standing still.
0: I love that. Sounds like a breath of fresh air. I mean, we've all gotten those emails from the person or the team that you're sure you've unsubscribed to this before and somehow you still keep getting the communication and it's just so aggravating. And and it really has become something where you don't look forward to it as much anymore. It's more of a chore to kind of like sort through and find the information that you actually need or to communicate with the people that you want. So that sounds like an excellent resource.
3: Yeah. Because think about it this way real quick, if I could just add one more thing. Email inherently is not bad. Like when you get an email from right. someone you you love, someone a service that you like, like it's great. It's great to get those emails. you You hear from a, yeah. a relative you don't talk to very often or an old friend. like it's a wonderful medium. What's wrong with it is that you don't have any control over everyone else who's trying to like scream in your ear. and you just have to put up with it and deal with it. and it's just it's horrible. and that's why it's horrible. So I think that Email can be a joy again, and and we're trying to bring it back to that. So that's our angle.
0: I love that concept because I think so many of us want to feel like that email can be a joy and that you can hear from the people you want to hear from and look forward to the messages that you want to receive coming up in your inbox. So that's great to equip people with more control. Well, Jason, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. Lots of powerful information here for attorneys that have gone remote and are trying to decide whether or not to stay remote and what that looks like for them. So thanks again for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks.
0: The lawyers podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.